Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello? Miss Wolf, it is me. You will see on the fountain next to you a three-gallon jug and a five-gallon jug. You must use them to make exactly four gallons of water. If you do not place a jug with exactly four gallons of water on the scale within three minutes, you will blow up. If you and your friend Miss Brown try to run away, you will blow up. If I try to run away, I will blow up. Do I make myself clear, Miss Wolf? Why are you doing this? I don't know. It's a snow day. I'm very bored. Goodbye, Miss Wolf. Okay, uh, how do we do this? Wait, wait. I've got it. We fill the five-gallon jug. We use it to fill the three-gallon jug. Now how many gallons do we have left in the big jug? Uh, six. Oh, you're not going to be good at this. No, we have two. Meanwhile, we empty the three-gallon jug. We pour the two gallons into it. Now we fill the five-gallon jug. We pour off enough of it to fill the three-gallon jug. Now, how many gallons are left in the five-gallon jug? One, two, three, six. No, four. Okay, then what do we do? That's it. We're done. That was the puzzle. That was amazing. How did you do that? Psh, I took a course at NYU called Mathematics in Die Hard Movies. Thank God they still teach Bruce Willis. What? I forgot to say that before you put the jug on the scale, you must close your eyes, turn around three times, and say, Brown. You're just making stuff up now. Yes. But this proves that being good at puzzles can save your life. Today on the show, everything from Rubik's Cube to the latest Hedgehog Gardens app. And now the inventor of the Jigsaw Pizza, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it's both a, it's a puzzle and it's a diet tool because you don't need to eat the pizza. You try to put it back together again. They just give you all the little tiny pieces that have been uh, cut up in strange shapes. And by the time you put it together, it's too cold to eat. Uh, people lose a lot of weight with the jigsaw pizza. All right, so this show would have been dear to the heart of my father. My father was a great doer of puzzles and, and designer of puzzles. Uh, it was not uncommon for me when, upon encountering my father, after not having seen him for days at a time, rather than, you know, say hello and begin some kind of normal conversation, he would simply hand me a puzzle that he had developed or that he'd found somewhere in a book. He had lots of books of puzzles. So there's a certain kind of temperament that likes doing this kind of thing. And we're going to talk about lots of different kinds of puzzles today. If there had been more power outages, this would have been a highly, highly appropriate show on a snowy day like this because you'd be there doing jigsaw puzzles, etc. by candlelight. But even so, it's a good if you're stuck inside today, you're probably thinking about puzzles, maybe doing puzzles. There's all kinds of puzzles. In the beginning here, we're going to talk about jigsaws. Then we'll go on to some of the other kinds of puzzles that, uh, well, they're as, certainly as old as Oedipus, right? He has to solve the riddle of the Sphinx. Anyway, we'll come back to all those kinds of puzzles and to their implications for the brain, their implications for learning. 
uh, as we go along here. But and as, I hope you will call in uh, when you have things to say. As I say at the beginning here, we're going to talk about jigsaw puzzles. So if they are near and dear to your heart, uh, give us a call at 860-275-7266, presumably to say something more than that. However, 860-275-7266. I believe that somewhere in this snowy world, Greg Hill is tweeting for us at WNPR Collins. So follow him there. You can tweet at Greg if you have little comments that you would like to make on the Twitters at WNPR Collins. So joining us now is Annie D. Williams. She's very brave. She's in the middle of the hurricane, much worse than we are, I think, up in Maine now. Uh, She's a puzzle maker, enthusiast, and she's the author of The Jigsaw Puzzle, Piecing Together a History and Cutting a Fine Figure, The Art of the Jigsaw Puzzle. Annie D. Williams, welcome to our show. Oh, well, it's good to talk to you. Okay, so... um, as I'm looking at this, maybe we should begin at the beginning. And and obviously, I've seen some of the bloodiest uh, barroom fights break out over the contentious question of who invented the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, it just takes nothing for people to turn to acts of violence. <laughs> so um, if, if you could maybe just begin with us there. Uh, I know there's... John Spilsbury is the most frequent answer, but maybe not the correct one. Tell, tell us more about this. Well, John Spilsbury was a map maker in London in the 1760s, and he uh, printed and manufactured wooden jigsaw puzzles, and he sold them <coughs> excuse me, to the children, to the aristocracy for the education of their children. They were all map puzzles. And there are some contenders for the title to the inventor of the jigsaw puzzle in Europe. But um, as you say, they're still fighting that one out. Um, Personally, I think that the person who invented the jigsaw puzzle is the guy who dropped his wife's best china platter and had to put it back together. Well, so the uh, the original jigsaw puzzles obviously were made of wood um, and and probably cut initially with some kind of very precise (coughs) handsaw. Yes, with uh, something uh, that resembles a coping saw. Um, and and at, at, one point, at what point did they become, I mean, obviously, the, under those circumstances, they were kind of a, a bespoke product from, for most people. Um, you know, each one of them would have been a little bit different. Um, I don't know how many, how many people would have had them. At what point did they become a mass item, an, an item that lots of people had and, and messed around well, with? As, as time went along into the 19th century and we had um, industrialization, uh, first in Britain and then in um, the United States, uh, uh, the manufacture of, of puzzles got to be a little bit easier. People were using uh, mechanized saws instead of hand saws. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, they, uh, some of the manufacturers of children's puzzles started replacing the wood with a thick cardboard, which saved the costs. And as the costs came down, and also as transportation and distribution networks improved, uh, they started reaching their way um, into the middle classes. And um, were they essentially, at the, let's say from you know, the 1850s to 1900, were they the same things that we do now? I mean, you basically have these interlocking pieces and you're trying to reconstruct, you know, I don't know, a J.M.W. Turner painting or something? Well, yes, except they weren't J.M.W. Turner paintings. Uh, the, the first puzzles for children in, in this country, at least, uh, didn't, uh, or sorry, the first puzzles for adults didn't arrive until about 1900. So up until then, uh, the puzzles were for children. They were educational. You might have a map of the United States. 
you might have a map of all uh, a picture of all the presidents of the United States. So you would learn some history by putting them all together. Um, you might have a, a puzzle with a biblical theme to teach you your scriptures. Uh, it was only around 1900 that we got to the um, uh, puzzles for adults. In in the puzzles for adults, I, I, I gather the Parker brothers were in fact big game changers in, in this business. Correct. That's right. Uh, Parker Brothers, which uh, most people know or used to know as the manufacturer of Monopoly uh, before Hasbro acquired them, uh, also made uh, children's games and puzzles, and they made wooden jigsaw puzzles from 1908 to 1958, uh, half a century. And they were pretty much the high quali- very high-quality puzzles. Um, was there, uh, I sense that sometime maybe during that 50-year arc, there was kind of a mania for, for jigsaw puzzles. I mean, people really wanted them and, and couldn't get new ones fast enough? That's right. The, there were actually two manias, uh, one around 1907, 1908. Uh, but the biggest one was in the Great Depression. Mm. And uh, having just gone through the Great Recession, I think people can relate to some of this. Unemployment was exceedingly high. In, in the United States, it was 25% overall, but it was higher in some of the major industrial cities. So there were a lot of people out of work. Uh, so they had no money. Um, they were looking for entertainment, and they were also looking for extra income because uh, they'd been laid off from their jobs. So on both the supply and the demand side, we had... Um, people looking for inexpensive entertainment, and we had a whole core of people who'd been uh, associated with the building industry, um, carpenters, architects, cabinet makers, uh, wall board manufacturers, and so on. They were all idle. So uh, we saw a lot of people start to make jigsaw puzzles, and they were just snapped up by people who couldn't afford to go out to dinner and a show anymore. Um, we're talking to Ann D. Williams. She is a historian uh, of uh, of jigsaw puzzles. You know, it's interesting because later in the show we're going to be talking about sort of um, the way that children are treated when they're solving different kinds of spatial pu- puzzles and whether certain um, overlays based on on sex uh, are are made and certain assumptions based on on sex are made. Um, the jigsaw puzzle has an interesting history also in terms of gender, uh, both in terms of who cut them and who bought them, right? The Parker Brothers hired women, exactly. correct? Yeah, um, tell us about that. They hired women um, to uh, cut up the puzzles. They, they were using uh, a machine that was called a scroll saw, and it resembles a uh, sewing machine, except that instead of a needle, you have a blade that's anchored top and bottom. And they hired young women uh, to cut up the puzzles, and they had a lot of... Ex- they're, been a number of explanations cited for this. One was that um, the women already knew how to operate a sewing machine, and operating a scroll saw was very similar. Um, and also, another explanation I've heard is that the women um, uh, had smaller hands and more dexterity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also true that they were paid a lot less than the men at that time. Um, I talked to one uh, woman who had worked as a puzzle cutter for 30 years, and her husband was a um, uh, custodian at Parker Brothers, and he got paid more than she did, um, even at the end of their careers. Uh, And she was doing very uh, artistic work with her scroll saw, uh, whereas he was just sweeping the floors. Hmm. Um, And and they were bought, uh, I I don't know how, how... 
predominantly by women, but they, they, women were women of a very different economic strata were uh, big customers for for Parker Brothers and other yes, puzzle makers. I would say that puzzle doers are uh, for the adult puzzle doer doers. They've been um, more women than men over the years, and mm. and that still continues. And um, I'm I'm not sure why that's the case. Um, but and and then of course when you look at who actually buys the puzzles, it has been women mm. because they do a lot of shopping for the whole family. So they or they might be buying gifts. Um, uh, the men don't go into the the puzzle department of the store very often. Imagine that I am a blinkered, pig ignorant Philistine who doesn't get why jigsaw puzzles are wonderful and beautiful and fascinating. And so I, you overhear me saying. Uh, anybody who's doing jigsaw puzzles has too much time on his or her hands. Exactly. Uh, I'm sure, yes, you've heard that, that blinkered, pigging, and philistine sentiment expressed. So um, so correct me then in D. Williams. Tell me. Well, it, it, it is interesting. Uh, some people don't do puzzles because they view them as just trivial. I mean, you're, you're, you buy this puzzle in a box, the picture's on the box, and you open the box, and the picture's been cut up, and you're reassembling the picture on the box. Mm. And that seems sort of meaningless to some people. Some people don't like puzzles because they're really terrified of them. They, they feel they don't have any spatial skills, uh, and uh, they, they get sort of bewildered when they're confronted with all those pieces. But the people who uh, enjoy puzzles, and I'd say it's an awful lot of people, um, get a lot out of them in, in different ways. It, it, certainly a sense of accomplishment. Um, there's a, you've set yourself a task. It's uh, fairly complex. Uh, and uh, when you finish it, you're, you're quite proud of it. Uh, for other people, it's not the, uh, so much the completion of the puzzle as it is the, the puzzle takes them away from the world's cares. Mm-hmm. Um, you can sort of it's like, uh, in some ways, like uh, escaping into a really good book. Um, but you, you just sort of shut out the rest of the world and, and you pay attention to the puzzle. Now, the original, the early wooden puzzles for adults in the um, early part of the 20th century were even more of a puzzle because there was no picture on the box. Mm. And um, that meant that it, it truly was a puzzle that you were you didn't know what you were getting until you actually finished the puzzle. And it's puzzles uh, are still I, I think it's sort of at various degrees uh, of challenge, right? The, I mean, oh, yes. uh, uh, these days I know that one of the sort of Rolls Royce puzzle companies is Stave Puzzles, maybe not too too far from you in Norwich, Vermont, uh, and. One of the things that they do, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here in uh, Sullivan, but um, uh, cr- uh, that w- some of their puzzles, you know, there might be 32 different ways that you could put the puzzle together, only one of which is actually correct. In exactly. Words, yeah, uh, but, uh, some, I called you Ann Sullivan, which means that you uh, have a whole different other rule with Helen Keller. You're actually Ann D. Williams. Sorry about that. Um, but, yeah, so tell us about this, this puzzles like the Stave puzzles, which are actually rather extraordinarily difficult to they put together. They are extraordinarily difficult. Uh, even their, they they label their puzzles. Um, uh, some are they call teasers, and some are called tricks. And then they have their basic puzzle. Even their most basic puzzle um, is hard to do because they might. Uh, well, first of all, there's no puzzle, picture on the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they're following that old tradition. Um, they often will 
cut an irregular edge. So if you were the person who needs to start with the corner pieces and the edge pieces to sort of frame your puzzle from the start, you're, you just don't have a chance with a stave puzzle because it doesn't have those straight edges and those corners. And in, in some of their puzzles, they put what they call dropouts. So there may actually be a hole in the puzzle where they've taken the pieces and thrown them out. Uh, and you, you can go nuts looking for those pieces. And then, as you say, they also uh, make these uh, puzzles that are, have a, a more mathematical basis where there are many permutations of, um, of uh, solutions, but only one of them is right. The, I understand also that they have some puzzles that are almost kind of 3D puzzles where some of the pieces, rather than going flat, go up on their edge. Oh, yeah, those are cool. <laughs> so, and you yourself, uh, Andy Williams, have, uh, you've been a puzzle cutter, right? Uh, I, I, um, I sort of got into being a historian by being a puzzle cutter, and I got into being a puzzle cutter by being a puzzle doer. And, and so uh, explain what it's like to be a puzzle cutter. I mean, did you do this for some company or no, I mean, no, 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 just no, to amuse no, yourself? No, or? no I, uh, my family uh, had a tradition of doing the wooden jigsaw puzzles, and uh, they got sort of hard to find in the, um, by the 1970s. Um, they were just too expensive for most stores to carry them. And uh, I, I got some instructions from a friend whose father had made wooden jigsaw puzzles in his home workshop during the Depression to make a little extra money. And it's actually quite simple. You can you get a scroll saw or a jigsaw, sometimes it's called. You get a picture that you like, and you get some plywood, uh, quarter-inch plywood, and you glue them together, and then you cut them up. And I thought it was very, very straightforward. And then I realized that, you know, my concept of the puzzle was the one where all the pieces were sort of in a grid, and there were rows and columns of pieces, uh, and they interlocked. But that wasn't the only way to cut a puzzle. As I went back and looked through the puzzles we had accumulated in my family over time, I found that uh, the, some of the best puzzle makers would put little figures into the puzzles. Uh, so there'd be a, in the sky, they would put a piece shaped like a bird or a butterfly, and in the um, ocean, they would put a piece shaped like a shark or a um, lobs- lobster or some other sea creature. And um, so not everybody cut puzzles the same way. And I found it a very relaxing thing to do. You sort of get into the zone when you're cutting. And it was um, also something where there was no right or wrong way uh, I was sort of encouraged by my puzzle making, and I thought, oh, I'll do some cabinet making. And now I found that didn't work at all. Uh, a wavy line didn't work when you're trying to cut uh, the edge of a cabinet. No, uh, you're crea- creating chaos uh, That's right. when you're, when you're uh, cutting a puzzle. If I, were, if I were to take my saw and plan to cut to the right and mistakenly cut to the left, who was to say that was wrong with a jigsaw puzzle? Nobody had to know but you anyway. Yes. So, Andy Williams, one last area I'd like to get into. Obviously, uh, we live in a digitally saturated environment in which there are all kinds of things for people to do, and they can play Angry Birds on their phone, uh, and, and they can do God knows what else. And so there's maybe a supposition that 
jigsaw puzzles, therefore, are just so hopelessly analog that no one will do them anymore. Although I find with stuff like this, generally speaking, that what digital culture does is make it even easier for people who like these things to find one another and have tournaments and meetings and societies and things like that. Exactly. Um, I I think you're right. I think there are a lot of amusements competing for our attention these days. Um, You go back to the Depression, there was no television even. Um, People would do jigsaw puzzles listening to the radio. Uh, but I, so I think people have been distracted away from them to some extent. At the same time, it's a wonderful family activity. You can sit around the table and do a puzzle in a companionable way. You can compete a little bit, um, uh, you know, um, see who can get their section done the fastest. Um, you can bicker a little bit about who's, got, who's doing the red pieces. And, um, or you could just be, you know, sort of, uh, you can come to it, you can leave it, you can come back to it. Um, so I, I think the jigsaw puzzle will definitely persevere in our culture. Um, it, 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 it has, there are jigsaw, electronic jigsaw puzzles. Um, you know, now on your, you can get one for your phone, but it's not the same tactile experience of, um, um, I, th- I think when you pick up a piece and you turn it over and you try to see if it's going to fit somewhere, um, you not only appreciate the piece, but you, if you're doing an interesting picture, you, you get to see the picture in, more fo- in a more focused way. A lot of people have told me that they have really appreciated fine art when they've done a, um, a jigsaw puzzle of a famous painting in a way that they wouldn't appreciate standing in front of it in a museum. It kind of makes sense. You begin to sort of, you're, you're assembling elements, you're creating little bits exactly. of light, light in this uh, particular corner or something like this. Andy Williams, uh, it's so great to talk to you, uh, so great to dip into your incredible knowledge of jigsaw puzzles. Uh, she's the author of The Jigsaw Puzzle, Piecing Together a History, and Cutting a Fine Figure, The Art of the Jigsaw Puzzle. We're going to go to other kinds of puzzles after this break. Stay with us. By the way, if you doubt that jigsaw puzzles are for smart people, among the celebrated customers of Stave is Bill Gates. Um, he likes Stave puzzles. Those are jigsaw puzzles, but there's all kinds of other puzzles as well. And uh, you could certainly make the argument that uh, almost as long as there is any kind of recorded human story, there is the story of puzzles. If you think about Oedipus, he has to solve the riddle of the Sphinx, uh, maybe the first written-down puzzle of humanity. Um, what is it? The walks on on four at dawn, three at noon, and four at twilight. Um, or however it goes. I might have just gotten it wrong. I think I just did. But anyway, it's the riddle of the Sphinx. You know what I'm talking about. Oedipus has to solve it. Uh, That means uh, that people have been thinking for a long time uh, about puzzles. Uh, You know, maybe not exclusively for entertainment, but at least partly so. Robert Stegman is a puzzle historian, expert, and collector, as well as the host of this year's International Puzzle Party in Canada. Welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on. So, um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit more uh, about what we know about how far back puzzle solving, puzzle solving as a source of entertainment or, or brain sharpening, uh, how far back can we trace it? 
Sure. Well, when you t when you talk about puzzles, of course, there there are lots of different categories, and um, <clears throat> ranging from from brain teasers that are that are kind of written or or mathematical based puzzles to to uh, mechanical puzzles, the kind of thing that involves a physical object that that uh, you you play with to solve the puzzle. And uh, some of the some of the earliest puzzles of which there are records are. Um, Mechanical puzzles uh, dating back uh, to the time of the uh, the ancient Egyptians. There's a, uh, a puzzle where you move counters on a uh, on a star-shaped board, uh, and that board has been found uh, carved into the stones uh, that were used in a uh, an ancient uh, temple. Uh, to um, uh, and the uh, the Workmen carved the uh, board into the stones because uh, the uh, board was trimmed and cut up when the stones were fitted uh, into the roof of the of the temple. Um, so uh, that's that's uh, dates to the time of uh, the Pharaoh Ramses the first, back uh, circa 1400 BC. Um, there are plenty of other. Uh, Kinds of puzzles dating to, to ancient times. Uh, not long ago, um, there was a palimpsest that was analyzed, uh, and uh, evidence of uh, a puzzle called the Ostomachian, which is kind of a tangram-like puzzle, um, uh, was found. It was invest being investigated by the uh, mathematician Archimedes. Now, one of the questions would be. You know, why do these things? In other words, um, what's the payoff? And, I mean, for some people, I think they, they look at the world as a, a complicated place full of actual existing problems uh, that need to be solved, that one's own life has problems in it uh, that need to be solved, that the whole business of being a human being is full of problems and questions. So why go seek out some uh, problems and questions and puzzles? Uh, whose solution, on whose solution, nothing in particular depends. It's just... Uh, an amusement. What's the, what's your theory about why why do people do that when they've got enough to worry about as it is, or maybe that's why they do it. Well, I, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think you 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 kind of hit it there. It's that that's why they do it. I mean, I think people are uh, there, there's evidence uh, from from neuroscientists that people are kind of hardwired uh, to be good at puzzles. That's that's uh, gotten us <laughs> where we are today, for better or worse. But Certainly, it's there's evidence that parts of the brain are, are wired to derive pleasure from finding patterns, deeper meaning behind things, and we're very good at pattern matching. And a lot of puzzles have to do with uh, having, you know, some insight that allows us to find uh, find a deeper pattern or uh, or spot some underlying meaning that'll help us unlock the secret of a puzzle. Um, also, obviously, if you sort of think about the way that the brain works, I'm sure there's a little squirt of dopamine or some kind of reward neurochemical every time you, you solve a problem. Or if you, even if you're just doing a crossword puzzle and, and you solve an especially hard clue or something like that, you know, I mean, you, you can almost feel it, right? I mean, I, I mean, I do crossword puzzles. So, I mean, you, you, you feel it. You, f you feel as though you're getting rewarded in some kind of way. I'm sure that's showing up in our, our brain chemistry, too. Sure, yeah. That's, uh, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's called the aha moment. Uh, when you know you're you're working on a problem and either consciously or subconsciously you kind of unlock a key and, and experience a, 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 some real pleasure at, at uh, discovering a solution. I, th I think to a certain extent people experience that all the time. And you, know, you ask, well, the life is full of 
more serious problems, why do puzzles? I think it's true of uh, any pursuit. Practice makes perfect, and certainly a puzzle is a controlled, uh, uh, you know, a controlled problem. People ask me all the time, why do you do puzzles? Don't you have enough frustration in your life? And the answer is puzzles, frustration, sure, but I can put it down and walk away and come back to it when I please, and, and many of life's problems aren't so simple. Yeah, actually, one of the more interesting um, studies that I read just getting ready for this show, there have been some studies that indicate that people do puzzles better when they're in good moods. The researchers even looked at um, uh, studies where uh, they they had one group um, actually watch something funny. Uh, I think it was actually a Robin Williams stand-up routine, and then try to do the puzzles, and the control groups did not. They looked at something scary or something neutral. And there's a whole theory that one of the things that that leads to that aha moment is kind of a, um, almost a weakening or softening of connections rather than having really rigid focus. Uh, you have to sort of let your brain relax enough to make some associations uh, that aren't automatic, that you, that you have to sort of widen the field of your brain. And so that actually being in a good mood kind of drops some of those barriers a little bit. So it's, it's sort of interesting that doing a puzzle can put you into a good mood, but it's also you get rewarded for being in a good mood when you try to do a puzzle. Yep. Yeah, I, th- I actually saw that same uh, some of that same research online. I think it makes sense. I think uh, being in a good mood is probably conducive to solving a lot of different problems. Maybe they ought to play Robin Williams movies in Congress. Well, they've been known to do puzzles in, in Congress, haven't they? They have. Yeah, actually, there was uh, there's uh, been a number of puzzle crazes over time, uh, dating back to the to the 1600s. Uh, you know, I think a lot of People of a certain age will remember the Rubik's Cube craze of the early 80s, um, but there was the equivalent uh, craze back in the court of King Louis XIV. Um, uh, listeners might be familiar with the game of Peg Solitaire, a uh, popular chain of restaurants often leaves out on their tables these triangular boards uh, with holes in them and uh, uh, little golf tees in the holes, and the objective is to uh, jump the pegs until you have only one left. And believe it or not, that was so popular uh, back in the time of uh, King Louis the Fourteenth in the mid-1600s that it was kind of the Rubik's Cube of that age uh, and uh, was written about by uh, a fairly well-known mathematician, Gottfried Leibniz, who was the mm-hmm. co-discoverer of calculus along with Isaac Newton. So we had that, and, we, and then there were instances where in actual, when Congress was actually in session, people yeah. were, were doing puzzles? Yeah, in, uh, in uh, 1889, a puzzle came out called Pigs and Clover, a uh, fairly, fairly simple uh, little dexterity puzzle uh, that was, uh, uh, it's even uh, continues to be made today. It's really a, kind of a circular maze with the little rolling balls inside, and you just have to kind of roll, tilt the thing until all the balls roll into a little uh, space in the center. And that, when it first came out, was such a novelty and became so popular down in, uh, in the Capitol uh, that senators were actually sending people out across the street to the newsstand to buy them and bring them back and uh, not paying attention to the goings-on in the Senate chambers while they were uh, playing with this puzzle. In fact, there's a cartoon that dates from the time of uh, Benjamin Harrison, who was the president, uh, sitting there playing with this game instead of attending to politics. 
Um, let's talk about Rubik's Cube for a second. You alluded to it. It certainly is um, one of the real puzzle crazes uh, of, of our living memories. Uh, I mean, everybody knows what a Rubik's Cube is. Uh, very, very few people have successfully solved one. Um, and uh, First of all, maybe you can describe what that craze to you was all about. Because you know, we were talking about good moods before. Um, I, I can't think of anything that's ever put me in such a foul mood as trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. And yet, people really loved doing it and it was ever present for a while well i think when rubik's cube first came out i think i think its popularity was was due to a couple things number one its novelty i mean no one had seen a puzzle like that before but it also appealed to people on a number of different levels um the first question was if you if you actually took time and played with it and rotated the faces and and such, you, you could look at it and say, how does this physical object actually work? Mm-hmm. It had a novel internal mechanism, and it wasn't clear at all unless you disassembled it how, when you turn these faces, the pieces stuck together. Right. Um, people, a lot of people posited that there might be rubber bands inside or some such thing, and that it was turned out to be a very clever internal mechanism. And, uh, you know, I, I received one as a child. Um, played with it, never really solved it on my own, and I think the uh, a lot of people bought it uh, and, uh, with uh, an assumption that it would be fairly easy to solve, and it turns out it uh, it only yields its secrets once you've really thought about it in an, in an analytical uh, way, and that, uh, that aspect of it is what I think contributed to its long-lasting appeal, that it, it really posed a problem which was fairly deep mathematically and allowed people to um, uh, use theory to figure out how to solve it and uh, increase their satisfaction once they're able to do that. And then, of course, there was the, you know, the additional uh, aspect that some people became very adept physically at manipulating it and solving it very rapidly, where today uh, I think the, the record for solving a fully scrambled cube and and restoring it stands at like 5.3 seconds or something along those lines, 5.55 seconds. Um, that also might be an interesting area, those the Rubik's Cube and other kinds of twisty puzzles like that, to pit a human being versus, versus a machine. Do machines do better on these kinds of things? Yeah, there's uh, there have been folks actually creating out of Lego, believe it or not. Uh, Lego uh, has uh, a lot of kits that have this computerized uh, module, and folks created something called Cube Stormer. And your listeners can go out to YouTube and check that out. The latest iteration of that, I think Cube Stormer 3 can solve a cube in uh, around three seconds. So oh. it's, it actually does it a little faster than the fastest human. Kind of a John Henry moment. We're talking to Robert Stegman. He's a puzzle historian, expert, and collector, uh, as well as the host of this year's International Puzzle Party in Canada. So what's going to be happening there? Who shows up at the International Puzzle Party, and what kinds of things do they do? Well, um, there's a group of uh, collectors. Uh, this organization was founded by a, a, a collector, uh, Jerry Slocum, who uh, is a real uh, puzzle expert. Uh, he's uh, quite an, uh, the author. He's written a number of uh, great books on, on mechanical puzzles. And back in the 80s, uh, Jerry started uh, having uh, groups of like-minded puzzle collectors uh, over to his house. And as that group grew... Um, and we started. They started meeting in uh, in more uh, in larger facilities. And uh, today, uh, there's maybe um, around 400 folks that get together each year, different parts of the world, uh, to just get together and celebrate their uh, their love for mechanical puzzles. 
Um, it's a by invitation uh, group. Uh, people interested in puzzles who uh, uh, might meet the qualifications are, are welcome to apply. Um, but uh, the uh, the um, main criteria is you have to be a real serious collector. Hmm. And so these puzzles also, uh, we're going to take a break in just a second and, and uh, add Dr. Susan Levine to our conversation. But these, these, some, most of these mechanical puzzles, it seems to me, are a little bit different maybe from a word puzzle. And, and let, me, let me explain why I think that is, and then you can tell me I'm rubbish. Um, and it, it seems to me that we're, sometimes when we're trying to, cu- to solve a word puzzle, a puzzle that's based on both sort of um, reacting to clues and analysis at the same time, you really are kind of toggling back and forth between two brain states. Uh, you ha- have to have sort of your hard analytical state, but you also have to be capable of some kind of sudden out-of-the-box insight. Um, so somehow or other, you kind of almost have to sort of balance you know, your imagination with your, your toughest analytical mindset. But it seems to me trying, solving Rubik's, maybe that's not quite as true. I may, I'm, I may be very, very wrong about this, but that, that it, that's more about the, a rigorous kind of analysis of how you solve that puzzle. Well, I, th- I think, you know, certainly for, for Rubik-style puzzles that lend themselves very, very well to, to mathematical analysis, where a lot of uh, formal uh, group theory, for instance, applies, there are plenty of other physical uh, puzzles, for instance, uh, uh, puzzle boxes. A fellow named Robert Yarger makes some, some really great uh, and, and ingenious uh, secret opening boxes, uh, uh, beautiful, beautifully handmade from, from wood, uh, exotic woods and... Uh, uh, where again, in some you're, you, it's a very tactile sensation, but mm-hmm. also the 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 approach has to be one of ingenuity, right? You, you're faced with a a box, and there isn't any obvious way to go about opening it. And you kind of have to explore it physically. You have to make a a mental picture of what's going on. If you hear certain noises, or certain pieces move, or certain moves are blocked, and uh, you know th- that kind of investigation, I think, is is one where I don't think people realize that they're or think that they're doing math per se, but they're still applying you know some some logical analytical skill and ingenuity to to figuring out what to do next. Hmm. Yeah, that, that it does. By the way, if you haven't read um, all the light we cannot see, which was sort of the Goldfinch type novel of last year. There's exactly that kind of puzzle in it, that kind of uh, physical puzzle in which you have to kind of feel your way to a solution. It's it's it's. There's a lot of these puzzles. There's a, one of the characters makes them. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk a, a little bit. I mean, th- we could do hours on the implications of the puzzles for learning and the implications of the puzzles for the study of the brain. Tom's football contains 12.5 pounds per square inch of air when he brings it into the bathroom and 10.5 when he comes out. The question is, what does two pounds of air look like? I'm going to put down six. Six has to be the right answer at some point today. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, Lydia Brown, who is in the introduction, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Samuel L. Jackson. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff slow cooking a Rubik's Cube, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the human tendency toward overconfidence. And now, back to Colin. Yes, we're talking about puzzles. We're here live in the afternoon. Uh, You didn't think we would desert you simply because there's a terrible snowstorm. No, no, we're all here uh, doing a radio show for you. So you may tweet us at WNPRColin. You can call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Robert Stegman is here with us. Uh, He is a puzzle historian, expert, and collector. Um, Also joining us, well, I'll introduce our next guest in in just a second. I want to say, I mentioned that you may have heard me mention this before the news, but um, one of the most, most mind-boggling things that I read getting ready for this show involved a very famous person who lived not far from here. His name was H.M. He was probably famous kind of for all the wrong reasons. He's the most studied brain, uh, studied patient in the history of brain science, uh, partly because of per- some semi-unwise brain surgery that was performed on him. He lost the ability to upload memories. Uh, this was done in the 1950s. Uh, he couldn't upload memories after 1953. Uh, he had had two slivers of brain removed, uh, and they interfered with his ability to make new memories. And so H.M., who was studied for decades and decades, um, he liked puzzles. Uh, and uh, the world was a very difficult and complicated place that often flew by him very fast. I think he liked that the thing we've been talking about, that uh, order out of chaos um, uh, uh, thrill that you get, uh, or at least comforting feeling that you get solving a puzzle. But what's really interesting is that supposedly he was not able to make new memories. But when working on puzzles, occasionally he could. He was, for example, able to somehow or other remember and repeat as an answer the the Jonas Salk vaccine discovery, uh, which happened after his memory stopped working. So that somehow or other, the mechanisms that he was using to solve puzzles, which do seem to involve imagination and guesswork and analysis and memory and but. All these things working in this complicated stew that sometimes is, very, sometimes is very hard to control, somehow or other his brain was doing something that it wasn't even supposed to be able to do. So that makes it very interesting for us to learn more and more about how people's brains work when they solve puzzles. Uh, to that end, uh, we introduce Susan C. Levine. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. She received her Ph.D. from MIT and has performed several studies on the educational values of puzzles for children. Welcome to the show. Uh, I heard her say something. Are you still there? Yeah, there I'm you are. Here. There I'm you are. Here. There you. It's a stormy day. Anything can happen out there in the, right, the communication right. universe. So, um, as you're um, looking at, at how children approach puzzles, well, first of all, one thing that you've looked at is is the projections that are made onto children in terms of their ability to solve puzzles based on sex, right? We we talk to boys a little bit differently about puzzles than we do to girls. Well, you know. Unlike block play, puzzle play is not as gendered. So in our studies uh, of kids between, a longitudinal study of kids between two and four years of age where we go into the homes and videotape what parents are doing with kids, mm-hmm. we just tell them to do what they ordinarily do, boys and girls are equally likely to play with a puzzle with their parent. That's not true of block play, but it, it is true of puzzle play. So. I think, uh, you know, it's a an activity where maybe we can use that to promote spatial thinking in both boys and girls. And, and is that is that the primary value of doing this kinds of uh, the, those kinds of puzzles, spatial thinking? Or, or is it broader than that? One would have to think it's, it's even bro- broader. I think it's broader. But I think, you know, spatial thinking is important. It, it, we, you know, there's been a lot of studies showing 
that it's a, a very important ability for the you know for success in the STEM disciplines. And it's not something that you know we typically teach in school. There's no subject called spatial. It's interwoven in a lot of different subjects, but you know, how much spatial uh, instruction uh, goes on in school may vary a lot depending on, you know, how confident the teacher feels about their own spatial thinking. And we actually have some evidence that that's the case for first and second graders. And, and, but obviously there's a, a lot that you have to do in terms of executive function, right, in order to integrate your spatial thinking and get to the solution to a puzzle. Yeah, I actually think that that's, you know, it's not something that I've studied yet, but I, I, I was going to bring that up, that I think that engaging in, in solving a puzzle, you know, it takes sustained attention. It, it takes making a plan. And you're not just randomly picking up pieces. You're you're predicting whether the, the piece will fit in. And, you know, so you might have to use inhibitory control to not pick up the piece that's the prettiest or the one that's nearest to you or your favorite color, but the one that's going to fit. So there's a lot of executive function skills that I think are promoted by puzzle play. Um, that sounds like an argument for more puzzle play, more puzzles integrated into general curriculum and, and maybe going pretty deep into into schooling. I think so. And, you know, puzzle play, you know, it's a very for little kids anyway, you know, two to four-year-olds, and, and even for adults, you know, they're, if they're working on a big jigsaw puzzle, at least this is the way it happens in my family, there's a few of us who sit down together and do it together. So it's a very social activity. And uh, for the, you know, in the two to four-year-old age range, it's typical for a parent to be involved with the kid while they're working on the puzzle and, to, and for the parents to support uh, their child's ability to put the puzzle together with spatial language. And, you know, one of the sort of um, things that puzzle play supports is, is learning those spatial terms, which, um, you know, philosophers and psychologists and linguists think are, are very important in supporting spatial thinking. So if you have a rich vocabulary of spatial terms, it might help you with your spatial thinking. And, and parents use these words when they're playing with puzzles with kids. Um, we're talking to Dr. Susan C. Levine. We've also got Robert Stegman here. And Robert Stegman, I know that you're intrigued by the relationship between puzzles and, and the Montessori philosophy. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm by no means an expert on Montessori, but my understanding is, you know, crucial to that philosophy is the notion that children will learn better if they're actually doing something rather than being told about something. And I think that fits in well with with just anecdotal evidence uh, from teachers who have used uh, puzzles as part of their classroom experience, where they they find that, for instance, normally disruptive kids will will be occupied by the puzzle itself and be interested in it and, and applying themselves and, and the energy that they have uh, to, to playing with the, the toy, what you know, can easily be viewed as a toy. But I, but I think one of the dimensions that, that the t teachers have spoken about was that they're, they're showing kids that it's okay not to know the answer right away, that some puzzles, for instance, even the teacher doesn't know how to solve, and that part of, part of approaching a puzzle is figuring out what you do know, figuring out what you don't know, and developing a strategy as to what questions you need to ask and how to go about trying to get the answers to those questions in order to make progress. 
And, you know, we're just almost out of time here. But, I mean, one thing that's worth saying is the obvious thing, which is that, you know, you said earlier on in our conversation that there's certainly an argument to be made for the idea that we're hardwired as humans to want to do puzzles. We're just going to do them. And, and one thing that we do see, you know, going back to the digitally distracting environment I was talking to, to, um, to Anne about uh, earlier in the, in the show is that, I mean, obviously on people's phones right now are just insane numbers of all kinds of different puzzles that, that if anything, digital life and having smartphones in our hands have, has turned us into even more avid puzzle doers than we ever were before. Yeah, I think uh, you know plenty of people have have decried the notion that that the digital age uh, has has somehow uh, uh, lessened uh, people's intelligence, but I, I think it's actually the opposite. It's it's brought um, that that process of thinking and and the ability to 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 uh, apply innate human skills to to a wider audience and and people can uh kind of do that in more uh segments of free time during the day um certainly you know from a from a uh, satisfaction sense I, I think there's a lot to be derived from from having a beautiful physical object uh as a puzzle collector um the the the, the physicality appeals to me as well but there's some great uh puzzles out there there's one called the room uh, which is, uh, you know, using the the tactile interface uh, of the of the device to to manipulate a an on-screen object and and do much the same puzzle solving that you would do with a physical box. Um, so there's there's just so many different avenues uh, now, and uh, certainly technology has also made even the uh, ability to go out and find physical puzzles that you might want to acquire. A lot easier than it used to be in, in, in the 80s and early days when I was collecting. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. I've got lots of other questions for uh, Dr. Levine, but we're just out of time right now. Thanks so much to Robert Stegman. That's whom you just heard talking. Thanks to Andy Williams, who was with us earlier in the show to talk about jigsaw puzzles. Susan, Dr. Susan C. Levine, uh, she was here to talk to us about the studies she's done of the educational value of puzzles for children. I don't feel as though we've even begun to explore this question. There's so much more to say about puzzles. We'll have to do another show very soon. Especially thanks to Josh Nalea for driving all the way up from the New Haven area to uh, produce his show here today. Also, we had help from Lydia Brown, Kion Wolf. Very brave people coming in in this terrible storm. We'll be back tomorrow. I'll be on the wheelhouse at 9, and then there's a show about overconfidence is coming up at our regular time. All right, Kayon, if this red block is the opposite color of this green block, then what color should be the opposite of this orange block? Uh, six. Blue. You know, I can't concentrate. I've been stuck in this Chinese finger trap since Sunday.